Glad to be here this morning. Good to see each one of you that are here. And I thank God for his grace and goodness to each one of us. Uh, someone said as I come in this morning that the crowd was going to be a little bit thinner because folks had gone to camp meeting. Well, that's a good reason to be gone, isn't it? Uh, be in camp meeting. I, out of pass, I preached there, well, many times in several several camp meetings. I was night evangelist at out of pass when uh, years passed, and I thank God for his grace and goodness. I hope they have a good meeting. I was also thinking as the song selection this morning, the choir songs and the spatial song were all old songs. And that just fits me because I'm an old preacher. <laughs> uh, uh, Brother Bartlett said, since I retired. I, I, I don't like that word, retire. I, uh, I did uh, cease to be a pastor, but uh, my calling will follow me to my day of death. And I thank God for the opportunity, even though uh, you maybe been expecting your pastor, but here I am uh, coming to fill in, and I trust that what I have on my heart will be a blessing to you. I, I intend to bring some encouragement if I can, but you're going to have to listen carefully because some of the things that I'm going to say is going to be uh, new to you and a new way of thinking. And I also want to say before I begin, I'm certainly glad to see Brother Shermie Romine. Uh, I've been praying for you, Brother Sherm, many, many times in the last a few weeks and a couple of months now. And when I think of you, I'll tell you what I think about. I think about the uh, energizing bunny. You ever see that energizing bunny? He just keeps going and going and going. Well, that's the way Brother Sherm is. He just keeps on going and going. Yeah. God surprised us in your recovery, Brother Sherm, and I, I thank God for that. I thank God for that. All right, as we begin our lesson, I want to pray. Father, we come before you with a thankful heart, and we first of all thank you for the safety of our trip in coming this morning. We thank you, Father of Heaven, for this people that have gathered out, and we ask that thou will bless and help each one in the way they stand in need of your help and grace today. I pray that thou will help me as I preach the thoughts that's on my heart. May I be able to make them clear and where I fall short. Holy Spirit, do your work and enlighten the hearts and minds of those as they hear the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name to bring some hope and faith to the people of God. Father, you know how discouraging the time is that we live in. We don't have to remind you of that. You know more about it than we ever will. But it's a discouraging time, and it uh, has a way of sapping our zeal and our enthusiasm for the things of God. It causes us, Lord, to have some anxiety and actually fear concerning the future. And I pray that thou will inspire our hope and our faith and God that you will help us, dear Lord, to be able to live our life as Christians. People who are men and women of faith, People who trust God, may we exemplify that in our everyday life. We ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. I've entitled my lesson, God Never Gives Up. God never gives up. And by that I mean God never gives up on attempting to accomplish his purpose for the world. Now, there are individuals in the Bible God gave up. There are also groups of people and even nations that God gave up on. 
But that's not what I have in mind. When I said that God never gives up, I mean he has a purpose. And in accomplishing that purpose, God never gives up. He never just throws up his hands and says, well, it looks like all is lost and, and uh, there's nothing that can be done. God never gives up. And that's what I want to talk to you about here this morning. Sometimes you and I, in face of difficulties and in face of things that, such as we're seeing today, and, you know, the chaos and the ungodliness and the sin, uh, sometimes it's not in our local communities as well as we read about it and hear about it and various uh, media sources and and we uh, we read about it and, and hear it and see it uh, in some of these large cities and and then also in our government and people that are in places of leadership in our country. Now on the local level, at least where I live, uh, that chaos does not exist like it does in San Francisco, I'll tell you, or like it does in Chicago. It does not exist in Sugar Creek, Ohio. And I, I sometimes, sometimes fear that that we get the idea that the whole country's that way. You know, just because, now they're grabbing the headlines and they get, my friend, a lot of, lot of uh, exposure and time and so on, so much so that it has a tendency of making us think that it, everything is like that. But it's not, it is not. At least one half of the country, my friend, proves that every election. But I know that there is a lot of it. I'm not underestimating that. But what I'm, my point here is that these things can discourage us. And we can begin to think, what's the use? And even on our local level, uh, the ability to win the loss, the ability to bring people to Christ has greatly diminished during the 60-some years I've been a preacher. Uh, years ago, it was different than what it is now, especially in Kentucky where I started preaching and uh, country churches. The, the church was the center of the community. And when you had a revival, lots of people came, unsaved as well as saved, where in our day and time, it's even hard sometimes to get the church to be faithful during a time of revival when the church is having spatial services or, or spatial uh, meetings such as camp meeting that you have that be coming up here in just a few weeks. And they, it's, a, it's a big change and, and, uh, and it, it, it has a tendency of making us think you know, we went into revivals when I was younger, believing that people was going to get saved. We believed that, that folks was going to come to Christ. But today, uh, it's, it's different than that. We just hope we can get church people out. Our unsaved neighbors are not interested at all. The church is no longer the center of our community like it once was. It is the center of our lives, but it's not the center of the community's life. And these things can be discouraging. We can get to thinking nobody's going to get saved. It, it's all lost. And, and when all of these gray-headed people are gone, who's going to fill their places? Who's going to take their places? There are not as many young people and so on. And, and some of us have children and grandchildren that have not followed in the same path that we did. And, and all of that can have a real discouraging effect. And the discouraging effect results in us just thinking, it's no use. It's no use. And it's just, uh, it's just lost. I mean, the thing's lost. It's, 
It's no use. We, uh, and it doesn't mean that we're going to be less faithful, but it does mean we're not going to have the zeal that we ought to have. When you get discouraged, friend, it can't help but dampen your zeal. I'm telling you, it just it dampens your zeal. I mean, you love the Lord, but your zeal's just not there because your hope has been undercut. And without hope, then it, it just undercuts everything. It undercuts our efforts. It undercuts our prayers. It undercuts, my friend, our endeavors to build up the kingdom of God because it, it's just a natural thing. Human beings find it impossible to go after something that they don't think is possible. I mean, it, 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 that's just, that's just the, the way it is. When, whenever you're uh, doing something and you come to the point, you think, it's no use. And then you quit, which is natural. It's a natural thing. And uh, I've got to get on here. I, I'm taking a long time spreading the tablecloth. But I, I pray, I, I just wanted you to understand what is in the back of my thinking behind this message. God never gives up. God is not discouraged. Oh, he, he becomes discouraged and frustrated in, in a certain sense with the wickedness of people. The Bible tells us that. He's grieved in his heart and so on. But what I mean is he never gives up on continuing to accomplish his purpose that he set in eternity. There is an eternal purpose of God that is being unfolded and developed in this time world. And that purpose, my friend, is to redeem lost mankind. Let's begin by reading. First thing I want to talk to you about is that God has an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose is to bring salvation to the whole world. Uh, and that, that purpose was, well, Paul says the gospel was preached to Abraham in the promise that God made to Abraham that all nations would be blessed by, by his descendants and, and by, by him continuing to be faithful. Ephesians, the third chapter, I begin reading in verse number one. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Now, first thing Paul's saying here, that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And by the way, the Gentiles was any nation and all nations outside of Israel. Israel was God's people. And then all the other nations were Gentiles. And that's what he's talking about here. He was a, uh, I, Paul, was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Other places in the New Testament tells us that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. He's talking about the gift that God gave him to carry out his mission as the apostle to the Gentiles. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I have afore in a few words, hereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He says here that by revelation, God made known unto him a mystery. And a mystery in the Bible is something that is unknown and can't be known except God reveals it to you. And Paul's saying that God had revealed unto him a mystery. And then in verse 5, he said, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy prophet, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
Now he's saying here that in past ages, that this mystery that God revealed to him was not known to the sons of men, but it's now been revealed to the New Testament Holy Ghost-filled ministry. Verse 6, that the Gentiles, now this is the mystery. This is the mystery. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now Paul's saying here that the mystery was this, that the Gentiles, all the other nations, would become partakers with Israel, God's people, they would become partakers of the promise that God made to save the world, the promise that he made in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister. He's saying that this was one of his purposes. According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me, by the effectual working of his power unto me who am the le- who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that i should preach among the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Here again, Paul's explaining this mystery was something that was not revealed. It was hinted at in the Old Testament prophets, but it was in the New Testament dispensation that this mystery became known. Did you know that the first Christians and the early Christians had to be taught this mystery. They did, autom- they did not automatically believe, even when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, they did not automatically believe that this gospel was for all the world. The first uncircumcised Gentiles was Cornelius and his household. And Peter, by spatial revelation, he had to have a spatial revelation from God even to go preach to them. Because the first Christians, the, the, the first Christian and the church at that time was Jewish completely. Or they had a few proselytes, which was Gentiles that became Jews. They did not know that this gospel was to be preached to all the world. Even the early Christians did not know that. After the persecution in Jerusalem, I can see by the look on some of your faces, you don't understand what I'm trying to say or you don't believe it, one of the two. But the early church did not have a worldwide vision. That had to be revealed unto them by God. First, it was Peter. And he went down to Cornelius' house, and he preached to them, and they received the message, and God poured out the Holy Spirit on them like he had on the Jewish church on the day of Pentecost. You can read that in the book of Acts. I hope you're familiar enough with the Bible and these stories that I don't have to do that. But they had to have a special revelation. And when Peter, after he preached to those Gentiles, and God moved in such a miraculous way, when he got back to Jerusalem, they called him to account. Why did you go to the uncircumcised? And then Peter relates the account. He relates how God brought that sheet with all different things. And and God said, eat. And he said, no, Lord, I won't. He refused a a commandment of God. No, I won't. I've never eaten anything unclean. 
And God said to him, what I have cleansed, don't call unclean. But he had to have a special revelation. And the early church debated it. And uh, Acts, the 15th chapter, one of the, uh, in my mind, it is the pivotal chapter of the book of Acts. But there was a council of Jerusalem, and that council was called together, my friend, to discuss whether or not the Gentiles had to become Jews before they became a part of the family of God. And they had a lot of discussion. The Bible said that no small debate, and that means a big one. And they argued. There was Christians who believed, honestly believed, that you had to continue to keep the Old Testament commandments like circumcision, uh, the food, uh, uh, the the food laws, and 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 Paul had been blessed. Barnabas, they were there at that conference. In fact. A group of Christians came down from the mother church at Jerusalem. I don't know why I'm going. I never intended to go into all these details. But it seems like you're not aware of this. But a group of Christians came from the mother church in Jerusalem down to Antioch. And Antioch was the first great Gentile church. And it was almost by accident. It said that after the persecution of Jerusalem, some of the, the people who were persecuted went to Antioch. And while they was there, they just happened to speak about Jesus to some of these Gentiles. And lo and behold, the Gentiles responded. And in such great numbers that the early church sent Barnabas down there, and Barnabas, the work was going growing so fast, he went to uh, find Saul in Tarsus, brought him back, and they labored together. I meant all of this, my friend, was something new. And uh, thank God, Paul was not the main speaker and the main voice at the council at Jerusalem in the 15th chapter of Acts. Peter was. And Peter got up and related how that he was the first person to preach to those Gentiles. And then Jesus' brother, James, got up and summed it up and released Gentile believers from keeping the Old Testament law. That was powerful. I mean, that, that changed all of the whole situation. You and I as Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be saved, right? But it showed that salvation was for the whole world. And that's the mystery Paul's talking about. They did not know that. They did not know that. It had to be revealed to them. And it was revealed, Paul telling us here, is revealed to him by God. But it had to be revealed to the church. Now that's fundamental. We, we take it for granted that, that they all knew that. They didn't know it. That this gospel was for the whole world. Sometimes you and I as Americans can think that all of God's kingdom is tied up in America. But it's not. There's a vast world out there. And we're just a, I don't know what percent we are, but we're a small percent of the world's population. And God, my friend, his purpose is not just save America. It's to save the world. Amen. Thank God, historically, America has been on the cutting edge of that ministry to the world. God help me. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm just at point one of 50 others. But 
uh, I just get a sense that you don't know these things. That it was by divine revelation that the church came to understand Christians in the first century came to understand that this gospel is for the whole world. And Paul said, let me get back here. Oh, wherefore I made, I'll start in verse 7. Wherefore I made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am least, uh, less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the extent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And here it is. According to the eternal purpose which he purchased in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has an eternal purpose. By the eternal, it means that God's purpose was formed before creation. God's purpose to save a lost world was formed before creation. It is eternal. It goes back beyond time. And that the mystery is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. That the whole world can become a part of the people of God. Not just, not just the descendants of Abraham, but the whole world. In fact, Paul tells us that we as believers and we that exercise faith in Christ and in the, the God of Abraham, we are children of Abraham. He that is a Jew is the one, not one outwardly in the flesh, but one inwardly, the circumcision of the heart. All of those things are in connection with this mystery. That my friend, God's eternal purpose was to accomplish the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. That's all I'm going to say on that. I hope you see that God has an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose, my friend, is to bring salvation and redeem mankind from the power of sin. Isaiah prophesied about this. Isaiah, in the uh, 42nd chapter, I'm going to read just the first four verses. Behold, my servant, and by my servant, if you're, if you're familiar with the last half of the book of Isaiah, Jesus' title was God's servant. He's talking about uh, Jesus, uh, the Messiah, is spoken of and given the title of servant, the God's servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Now, this is a, this is a clear path, uh, prophecy Concerning Jesus. You don't have to guess about it. Uh, let me read you something in Matthew. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, beginning verse number 14. I'll give you a little background here. Jesus was in a synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand. 
And it happened to be the Sabbath, and the Pharisees said that he was breaking the Sabbath. That's the background of this. And in the 14th verse, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. And the reason was because they believed he was a sinner, because he was breaking the Sabbath. But when Jesus knew it, he knew about their plan to kill him. And when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. Now, what happened was that Jesus left that place, withdrew, and he healed people, multitudes followed him, and he healed them, but he told them, don't tell anybody of what I've done for you. But they didn't listen to him. They, they, they went out and testified. But the reason was Jesus did not want to draw attention to himself. It was not time for him to die yet. And he did not want to draw attention to himself. And he charged them that they should not make him known. And then here's what he said, Matthew. That it might be fulfilled. Now this ministry of Jesus and his actions. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And he shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah. He tells us in very clear language, I mean, plain language. You don't have to guess. Uh, it, it's a clear passage proclaiming, my friend, or announcing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah. Let's look at it again. My servant, as I said, that is the title that Isaiah uses concerning the Messiah in the latter part of his book. Then he said, my Elect, and the word elect means my chosen. That's what the wording was in Matthew. It simply means my chosen one. And Jesus, my friend, was chosen before the foundation of the world to accomplish the great work of human redemption. And then he said, I will put my spirit upon him. And that was fulfilled, my friend, at Jesus' water baptism when the Holy Spirit came upon him in a bodily form like a dove, and my friend empowered him uh, to be and to do the work of the Messiah. In fact, the word Messiah, that comes from Hebrew, and the word Christ, which is Greek. But those two words, Messiah and Christ, means the anointed one. When we say Jesus the Christ, what we're saying is Jesus the anointed one. Or we say Jesus the Messiah. What we're saying is Jesus the anointed one. And he was anointed, my friend, by God. Acts the 10th chapter 38 verse said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And it says, And he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. The word judgment in a broad sense here, it, it includes justice. And he's, he's talking about what the work of Christ and, the well, justice and judge, judgment and justice are, are the results of redemption. This actually is a prophecy that the gospel that changes mankind would be offered and preached unto the Gentiles. In fact, unto the whole world. 
And it said, and he shall not cry nor lift up his voice. And that's a description of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' manner of ministry was rather quiet and gentle. When those Pharisees decided to, uh, to try to destroy him, he just withdrew. He didn't stand up and fight. He was gentle, meek. Amen? He did not seek to promote his teachings by clamor or loud and noisy commotion. He didn't send out a, a PR representatives. He didn't have to. But uh, that he's just describing Jesus' ministry here. And then he said, a bruised reed shall he not break. A reed is uh, like a, it's almost like a, bl br a blade of grass. It's not exactly that, but it's almost like that. And when, when it's broken, you know, bent and broken, it's, it's a symbol of something that is very feeble. What could be more feeble than a broken or, or cracked reed? And what it represents is the spiritually weak, the depressed in spirit, the dejected, the crushed, the ones, my friend, that are discouraged. And Jesus will deal tenderly with them. And he won't, you know, when, when a believer's weak, Jesus just doesn't say, you weakling, I'm through with you. He will not break the bruised reed. Amen? He heals it. He heals it. Sometimes you and I can get frustrated with weak people. But thank God Jesus deals tenderly with them. You can be overly severe and strict and too demanding with people who are struggling. You know, a person that's doing his best, that's all he can do. And to be demanding to the place that you un-Christianize him and say he's not saved is not the thing that he needs, I'll tell you. i got to go on. A smoking flax shall he not quench. The smoking flax is a wick that is burning very dimly. In fact, just maybe almost just smoking, but just, just a few embers of, of burning, just burning very dimly. He will not quench it. This picture is a person whose flame of devotion is verily burning, you know. The fire of zeal is almost gone. It's just flickering. <laughs> I mean, and the idea, my friend, is that a smoldering wick that's about to go out, God will not just snuff it out. Tell you what he does. He trims it. He gives it fresh oil and causes it to burn brightly again. And what this is, this is, a uh, it's describing Jesus' ministry of gentleness and long-suffering towards weak, struggling believers, people, my friend, that are disheartened and discouraged, like some of you. <laughs> he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Amen. God never gives up on accomplishing his purpose of redemption. And that's found in this fourth verse. He shall not fail or falter, nor be discouraged. That means discouraged in his purpose and task. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall await or, or his eye, excuse me, and the isles shall wait for his law. God never gives up. 
The isles here are islands, and I'll tell you what that's referring to. It's referring to people in remote areas. And what that is, that's an indication or implication of the whole world. Even the remote areas. Even the remote areas. This gospel's for the whole world. This plan of redemption is for all mankind. And, and it says here, these isles wait for his law. These distant isles, you know, that, that may be isolated, but they wait for his law. And the idea of wait here, and I looked it up in the original language, it means to wait longingly, to wait in anticipation. And I'm going to tell you, brother, the whole world is waiting longingly for something. They're searching it in the wrong places. You know that, and I do too. There's a place, my friend, where redemption is what mankind, the desire for real redemption, my friend, exists in the heart of the whole human family. That's why the gospel, when it's, when it's understood, there's something inside of us that responds to that. Because it is addressing a deep need that all humans have. A need, my friend, to be delivered from the power of sin. This passage is telling us the scope of Jesus' ministry, the, the scope of his uh, work of salvation. Even the distant islands longingly wait for the salvation or deliverance from God. And Jesus' task of bringing redemption to the Gentiles actually includes the whole world. Now, I've repeated that probably about 30 times, but I want it impressed upon your mind. And God will never quit until this task is accomplished. Now, you and I may quit. We can become so discouraged that we give up. I mean, it's possible. I've been tempted. I don't know about you, but I've been tempted. I thought, what's the use? What's the use? I've been tempted, but I never gave up. But God never gives up. My friend, until this task is accomplished, he, ne he shall never fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice. On earth. Now, I know this goes beyond what some of you believe. I know that. But until God has succeeded, not only in publishing this message of salvation, but my friend, in establishing justice. Someone said, what, what do you think that means? Well, justice here is in its broadest sense. It includes Societal justice, societal order. We live in a time where societal order, because of the uh, under, uh, undermining of moral values, we live in a time where societal order is breaking down. You see it in the riots, you see it in the killings, you see it in the mass uh, shootings and all of that. Societal order breaks down. And justice here means, my friend, to restore that societal order, that moral order. It's more than legal justice. Of course, legal justice is included, but it's more than that. What is promised here is nothing less than deliverance and salvation from God. From all the social evils that plague mankind and to restore, my friend, right moral order in society. This, is, this gospel is meant to do more than save your soul from hell. 
It's meant, my friend, to affect culture, to affect society. It's, it's meant to restore, my friend, moral order. It's practical. Years ago, preachers used to preach on that more. That uh, we, we, we come to a period of time where some people said, leave the politics to the ungodly and we'll serve the Lord over here and let them have the world. Well, that didn't come out very good, did it? Huh? The results of that kind of thinking ain't, has not been well. Whether people know it or not, my friend, the only hope for mankind is to wait on and trust in the Lord for his salvation. Now, God's never going to quit until he has accomplished this task. That's what the Bible's saying here. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he set judgment in the earth and the isle shall wait for his law. I meant this message to be an encouragement to you. Uh, the purposes of God, my friend, are going to be accomplished. You can depend on it. If it takes another thousand years Purposes of God are going to be accomplished. The church has come through some very difficult times, some low times. We're in one of them now. They're discouraging. We're losing the battle. Our influence in the world, at least in our culture, our influence seems to be diminishing, though that is not altogether true. But it seems that way. And my friend, I say again that we need to remember that God really is, and I mean this, that God really is in ultimate control of human history. He's in control how it's going to end. You hear preaching about the end of time and, and people say that all of this... Uh, Wickedness and ungodliness are sure signs of Jesus soon coming. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't subscribe to that. <clears throat> I don't subscribe to that. The accomplishment of this purpose of God is the only true sign of the end of time. No other passage in the Bible says that this has to happen and, until, the, uh, until the end comes. But this is what Matthew said in 24th chapter and the 14th verse. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now I know, let me just ask you a question. Why has Jesus not returned already? You know, been over 2,000 years now. Why has he not returned already? In the first century, there were, there were people, my friend, that was scoffing. They were mocking, and they, they're doing it today as well. But there were people, my friend, scoffing and mocking and saying, where is his promise of his coming? Where's his promise? I'm going to turn here if I find it momentarily. Second Peter, third chapter. Second Peter in the third chapter, if you're not familiar with it, is talking about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And he tells us in the third verse, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, 
and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the father fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they're willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved... Be not ignorant of one thing, one day, excuse me, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's telling them here that scoffers would come and they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? You know, if they said that in the first century, what do you think now in the 21st century, 2,000 years later? Where's the promise? Where? Why hasn't he come? Why has he not come? First of all, he said, I want you to know that time means nothing to God. A thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand. And, th- and that, that expression, he did not tell us to try to sit down and figure out mathematically what that is. What he t- was telling us, time means nothing to God. That's why I said a few moments ago that God's going to accomplish his purpose even if it takes another thousand years. God is not dependent upon this present generation only to accomplish his purpose. He can wait till we all die off and another generation arises which has faith in God and trust the Lord to accomplish his purpose. God is not so much dependent upon us as we are upon him. The ninth verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Listen now. But his long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here he tells us in this ninth verse that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The word slack means tardy, late, uh, or it could refer to the seeming delay of the coming of the second coming of Christ. That seeming delay to us has a good reason. And he tells us here what that is. His promise. And the promise he's referring to here, not slack concerning his promise. His promise is, my friend, his second coming. That's what he's talking about here. Verse number four, I already read it. Where is the promise of his coming? That's the promise he's referring to here. And he's, God's not slack in keeping that promise of coming as some men consider it, or they think it is. But he's long-suffering. The word long-suffering means God's ability to forbear and to put up with wickedness and evil for a long time before bringing judgment. God's long-suffering, you can read about it in the Scriptures, his long-suffering has been tested again and again and again. God puts up with a whole lot more probably than I would, tell you the truth. I'd zap some people way before anything happens to them. But God's long-suffering. Why is he long-suffering? He gives us the reason. The reason for God's long-suffering here, my friend, is that he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God's real reason for the seeming delay of judgment on sin and evil and the second coming of Christ will be the ultimate judgment of evil. 
God's real reason is he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then Peter tells us again, later in this same chapter, in verse number 15, he said, an account, an account means to credit, an account the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What's God putting up with all this for? His purpose is salvation. He's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. God's purpose, I I repeated this again and again, but I want it to be in your mind. God's purpose is to redeem lost mankind worldwide. That the whole world has an opportunity, my friend, to accept Christ. Did you know God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Ezekiel 33, 11 said, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked... Turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? First Timothy, the second chapter, fourth verse said, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Why has Jesus not come? Because his task is not finished. The job's not done. And that has a lot of implications for you and I, which I will not go into. The task is not done. Someone said, what are you trying to tell us, Brother Yoder? Well, God will never give up, my friend, on accomplishing his purpose, which is to redeem lost mankind. God will never give that up. He will never fault, fail, or become discouraged. God's not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands and saying, oh my, oh my, my purpose is going to fail because of all the wickedness and ungodly. No. God is not discouraged. You and I can become discouraged because we live in the now. We live in the now. And God's perspective is eternal. Ours is not. Living life, we live it in the now. Did you know, no matter how weak the church seems to be, and especially in times when their church is facing overwhelming odds, God will not give up. You know, church attendance has really dropped off. Yeah, you can ask any pastor. It's not just not just here, it's it's everywhere. And people I, I just can't understand it. Why a person who claims to love God doesn't want to be in worship service. I, I I just can't understand that. Somebody said, Well, I got a reason, okay. The history of the church, at times in the history of the church, she has been in a very low spiritual condition. I'll not take time, but I I am somewhat of a student of the history of the church. And I can tell you, my friend, this is the worst time that you and I have ever seen but it's not the worst time 
that ever was. There have been times during this Christian dispensation when Christians would have loved to be in the conditions that you and I are because their condition was so much worse. But there have been times in history when the church has been in very low spiritual condition. There's times when she is as weak as a bruised reed. <laughs> you know, I, I read articles, there's some secular writers talk about, you know, how, how weak the church is and how that we're not, we're not really affecting the culture and uh, there's other there's other influencers of the culture. And there's been times like that. And we're in one of them. There's been times when the light of the church and the influence of the church was as dim as a smoking wick. Did God just wash his hands of it? No. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Even in times like this, God never gave up accomplishing his purpose of redemption. Now, I don't know whether you understood me or not, but our hope is in God, believe me. You and I may become so discouraged we quit. Pastors sometimes get discouraged and quit. I know of a pastor one time, Kentucky. Uh, he got up one Sunday morning and said, I'm sick and tired of bottle feeding you people. I'm resigning. Said, you're just bickering and nitpicking and, and complaining. And I'm through with it. And he walked out. And he was a, uh, he is a good preacher. But he quit. Sad truth was that not only did he quit the church, but eventually he, he gave up on God. That's where the devil's trying to take us. Friend, I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. He's trying to take us through discouragement to a place that you'll give up. Now, maybe not outwardly. You'll still come, sit in the pew, but inwardly, <laughs> your zeal is like a flickering wick. They're not much there anymore. Your strength and power is like a bruised reed. You don't have the courage that you once had. Well, God's not given up. Believe me, friend, no matter what any of us do or all of us do, God's not given up. Until he has established justice in the world. Father, I tried my best. Now, Lord, I may not have made it as plain for some folks as it needs to be, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to make plain what I'm trying to do. I pray for the faith and the zeal of this congregation that they would not come to a place where internally they just give up. They just say, what's the use? Why pray? Why work? Nothing's going to happen. And Lord, I pray for them that that would be long-suffering. 
I pray that you'll deal with them gently. As the scriptures that I read describe. I pray that thou will do the work of healing spiritually. And that thou, Heavenly Father, would restore thy people to be a people of faith. More than just faith in their their own personal salvation, but faith in the gospel, faith in the work of the kingdom. So many of our young people have turned from being interested in the things of God and they're interested in a lot of other things. And other things have taken up their interest and their time and their effort. I pray, Father, for the older folks. And I'm in that number. That, Father of heaven, that we will not in our old age fail thee but that, Father, we will finish this race with victory. Oh, I pray for your people. (laughs) We need help. God, we need help. With all that we're faced with, we need some help, Lord. And I know that it's found in thee. And I just leave it in your hands, Father. Bless this people. Strengthen their faith. Encourage their hope. In Jesus' name, amen.